Welcome to the Disease Du Jour podcast on the topic of fluid therapy in horses with Drs. Kira Epstein and Naomi Crabtree. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Epstein, DVM, DACVS Large Animal, is a diplomate of the American College of Emergency Critical Care and she's a professor in large animal surgery and emergency critical care and the interim department chair of the Department of Large Animal Medicine and Large Animal Emergency and Critical Care Service at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital at the University of Georgia. Dr. Crabtree, a DVM, MS, DACBS large animal, is also a diplomate of the American College of Emergency Critical Care. She is a clinical assistant professor of large animal surgery and emergency critical care at the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Epstein and Crabtree. It's nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank Thank you for having us. Well, we know that fluid therapy critical to many aspects of equine care and management. And last year, you collaborated on an, I'm going to call it amazing, in-depth review article titled Current Concepts in Fluid Therapy in Horses to provide a user-friendly summary of current literature. And we will link to your open access article in the equimanagement.com page that goes with this podcast so listeners can actually read that piece of research. And you're both involved in emergency and critical care. So why did you think this review paper on fluid therapy in horses was so important? And I'm going to throw this to Dr. Epstein. Well, this is um, an interesting case because I was actually approached to or recruited to provide an invited review of fluid therapy in horses. Um, It was part of a larger topic issue in Frontiers that was managed by several editors um, with a variety of specializations. And their mission was to pick topics that would be of interest to to the readers as well as highlight some of the controversies um, in something that's considered a, a really common therapy. And I recruited Dr. Crabtree to help me write it um, because I think most of the time two heads are better than one. So um, we wrote it together um, and I kind of envisioned um, in the area of horses that the challenges that I saw were that there's not a lot of evidence to base our recommendations on. And so um, that's why I focused on reviewing what is available in horses and then trying to help give a little bit more information about what we can do with that information and maybe what we can draw on from other species, including humans. And so um, just like many of the areas of veterinary practice, and especially in horses, um, a lot of our studies are are just experimental or retrospective in nature, or there's a few kind of stronger studies, but they're marred by small sample size and and not very similar animals within the groups. Um, And so that makes us rely on things like expert opinion, um, theory, physiology, and extrapolation from other species, but that's been shown to really not be the the best way to to practice. And so the goal here was to try to bring all those things together in a way that we could um, make some recommendations. And um, when we started doing that, where I found the literature kind of breaking down to that was available was 
very parallel to the controversies that have been seen in human um, fluid therapy, as well as other veterinary species um, fluid therapy. And so for the purpose of organizing the article, if anybody does want to read for more details after we finish talking about it and summarize, um, we really wanted to get to this idea of treating fluids more like a drug. Um, and so deciding what type of fluids, how much of those fluids, how long you should give them. And then something that is in a future area of research is how do you decide when to stop them um, and decrease them? And so um, in looking at them that way, where we found the most similar kind of controversies to other species were in the idea of how we should give the drug. So even, you know, what route to give it by and what types of fluids are best um, in those routes and then how much we should be giving. And so um, those are the, the areas that the, the article really focused on and, and how it's structured in summary. Well, and again, I think this, I read through this and I'm not a veterinarian, but this was amazing. Um, I just really enjoyed seeing how you all had pulled all this together. But let's talk about some of these summary findings. And I'm going to throw this to start with to Dr. Crabtree. After getting through all of this material, it was definitely, um, we felt like we needed to distill it down to some major points of kind of takeaways from you know, a 13 page manuscript on fluid therapy, and there's a lot to hit on. So we came up with six kind of most important points, starting with um, IV fluid therapy remaining the most appropriate route for volume resuscitation. However, other routes like intragastric via nasogastric tube or per rectum fluid administration being efficacious and seemingly safe routes for correcting and maintaining systemic hydration and increasing fecal water content at rates that have been reported in the literature. So I think this point was pretty important to both of us to hit home and something that I know at least when I came out of vet school, I probably didn't understand well enough. And I think when you're taught about IV fluid therapy as a student, you know, someone comes at you and says, you know, a horse needs IV fluids to do these three things you know, correct dehydration, maintain their maintenance needs, and then provide any um, kind of replacement of ongoing losses. And that's very much the traditional kind of three-part discussion of fluid therapy. But what I think I missed in that was that you don't necessarily need to do any or all of those via the IV route. And that actually it might be more appropriate to do some or all of those via the um, alternate routes that would be both cheaper, potentially safer, um, and something you could do more easily in the field a lot of the time. So I think the point we were really trying to hit home here is if you have a patient that requires resuscitation, absolutely, the intravenous route is the appropriate route in that case. If you then need to either continue treating that patient and maintaining, you know, normal hydration and keeping up with their maintenance needs and things like that, that can actually be done by via different routes. And those routes can kind of be used either simultaneously or instead of intravenous fluids, um, rather than constantly relying on a pretty invasive, honestly, procedure of placing a catheter and maintaining on IV fluids when you maybe don't need to. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Naomi really drove home the things that that when we were talking about it, we felt were really important on this point. Um, and I think it should be 
comforting to um, people that are not able to have a hospital and or staff a hospital in the way that would be required to really do the intensive monitoring that would be best for kind of CRI rates of fluids, which is what would be um, most indicated for those items that she kind of discussed related to 24 hour fluid plans. Um, you know, I think that that is something that that should bring comfort, I think, to to people that don't have access to that, that there are other ways to do it that are as efficacious and as safe. Um, I think the thing that I would add is that that first part I would really aggress, I would really um, kind of emphasize that when you're talking about resuscitation, that's when IV fluids are really the most important. And that is something that you know, you can certainly do in a field and an animal that needs resuscitation. So if a horse really is in shock, then you can certainly administer um, a, a shock dose. And those horses really are horses that should then be referred either to yourself if you have a hospital that you can treat them further at or to um, another um, referral practice where they can they can get that type of treatment because it's um and that's the time to bolus fluids so that is something that is doable kind of in a field visit type situation and uh what else um in your summary of this review of fluid therapy and horses do you want to um talk about i mean i know one thing that we had discussed before we got on uh the recording for the podcast was fluid overload mm-hmm yeah, I think we don't have a lot of information on fluid overload, but that does kind of lead into our second summary point um, from the from the article, which is um, I'll just read it, is that aggressive IV fluid rates greater than twice maintenance, which I think might be less than what people think of as aggressive, um, are likely to be no more effective at um, increasing fecal water than lower rates despite significant increases in the cost and increasing risk of electrolyte abnormalities and volume overload. Um, what I would add to that is that when we start, start thinking about things like fixing dehydration, the same thing um, does seem to hold true. It's not as well understood, but it, it does seem like other routes and um, are as effective and that um, higher rates are not more effective. And so I think for treating things like impactions and for managing horses with um, dehydration, you really um, can get away with other routes as well as um, keeping a moderate fluid rate. And that, I think we always talk about the finances when we talk about horses, because, you know, horses, one of the clinicians here is always likes to say that horses most frequent cause of death is lack of dough. Um, and so, you know, we can fix a lot of things, but can we fix them for the amount that they need? And so keeping that in mind, especially when you're talking about IV fluids is really important. Um, mm -hmm. So even though we might not see um, severe evidence of volume overload or electrolyte abnormalities, if it's not going to be more, efficacious and it's going to cost you a lot more, um, you should probably not do it. And so 
um, it can save them a lot of money if you just use the appropriate fluid rate as well as decreasing the risk for um, adverse effects of the fluids. Yeah, I agree. I think um, we have kind of skated by not thinking about the concept of volume overload in horses for a long time. And I think that's because we get lucky. Um, and with the exception of foals, we don't really think of our patients as having the types of diseases that may predispose an animal to volume overload, whether that be renal disease or cardiac disease, the ones that we really pay attention to in people and small animals. But I think we overlook that we are dealing with critically ill patients with problems that could, you know, predispose them to volume overlight, like systemic inflammation. Um, so I think it's overlooked. And I think because of that, we don't have a lot of literature on it. And so it was not much more than kind of a touch point in this article because we don't have much to go on. But bringing it back around to, you know, may not be safe and also doesn't seem to be effective. So just doesn't make sense to do it. And I think that was, um, again, something else I kind of missed coming out of school until I had the time to stop and think about this stuff some more. And that's great. And Dr. Epstein, um, what is another summary point you want to cover? Um, so the third summary point that we came up with for the paper is a, a topic that is um, something that probably is relatively unique to large animal practitioners. So. Um, for many years in the past, and um, there was a re kind of surgence of its use during a fluid shortage a couple of years ago. Um, there's been an interest in the use of kind of non-sterile isotonic fluid options or even sterilized um, homemade or compounded IV fluids. And one of the things that um, it's not well understood, but but there's definitely two potential issues with this. And so this summary point says that use of non-sterile isotonic fluid options may be ill-advised due to the potential for mixing errors, bacterial and endotoxin contamination, and increased risk for catheter site complications. And so that kind of covers the non-sterile isotonic fluids. The other thing to realize about even um, compounded fluids is that the FDA has shown a renewed interest in veterinary drugs these days, um, and compounding is um, it's an issue that is going to come up, I think, more and more. And if there is a legitimate option that is commercially made, it is essentially illegal um, to, to use um, compounded items and and certainly going to the extent of using non-sterile compounded items um, if ever there were a complication um, i think that that could be a huge potential liability um, now i think that sometimes people get around that by having people sign waivers and and things like that but um you know we used the we used compounded fluids here at uga for a, a long time um, only stopped maybe I want to say ten or eleven years ago, um, but the there's always no matter how good the the place is and no matter how well things are controlled, um, you'll still hear stories of issues that that people had with them. Um, and then Naomi, I don't know if you want to talk about the reason. I think it's interesting the reasons people 
might pick to use these types of fluids? Yeah, um, certainly in my experience, it's because I've been other places, it would change before I came to UGA, but I've certainly been other places where we've used um, non-sterile fluids and homemade fluids, and I've been the one mixing it up and rolling the the, I don't know, water bottle around trying to mix them up in the middle of the night. Um, and almost, you know, across the board, it's either there's not fluids available, commercially available, which is, you know, where I mostly had the experience and a significant um, difference in price. So IV fluids in horses are incredibly expensive from the setup, you know, the catheter and the fluid lines, those are one cost but also the bags of fluids themselves and the volume that you're likely to use is, you know, quite significant and is a huge part of a lot of these um, inpatient bills. So I think there's always a desire to try to help the client and um, offer them a less expensive choice. Um, but I think you do have to be careful for the myriad of reasons that Dr. Epstein just discussed, you know, mostly is it legal and also is it safe? And, you know, you can try to cover yourself by having them sign some kind of understanding, but it's still ultimately your license and your choice to use a product that's, you know, technically kind of against the rules. Um, and I think, I think it's hard. I think if you don't have the alternate option to offer somebody, they're going to pay for whatever you can offer them. And so, here because we don't have the choice to offer them the less expensive maybe less ideal option you know these fluids are the only options we have and that's what's provided and that's what's quoted for and used in hospital and people will pay for it um but i think that then brings you back around to does it need to be iv does it need to all be iv um you know are we using volumes that are superseding what we're really needing to get this done and so being more vigilant and careful on your treatment plan on the first place can maybe be a way to solve the kind of never ending bill of fluids running into a horse. Okay, and what about the another summary point that you'd like to cover? Yeah, I can go with the fourth one. So I'll do the same, I'll read it and then we can kind of elaborate. So normal saline has been repeatedly reported to result in hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which in other species has been associated with complications and possibly poorer outcomes. As such, balanced electrolyte solutions, something like lactated ringer solution, for example, are likely preferable in the majority of patients. Exceptions obviously occur, and they may include situations in which you actually might want those effects that would be therapeutic. So if you had a hypochloremic patient who was alkalotic, that could actually be a benefit. Um, or there are other conditions that people will kind of tote going for a normal saline, such as hyperkalemia, um, trying to avoid something that has any additional potassium. But certainly that's a little bit debatable in terms of the overall volume and how much potassium you're really giving them through these balanced electrolyte solutions. So I feel like I keep harking back to when I was in school and what I learned, but I think that we have fooled ourselves for a long time calling this normal saline. You know, it gives you that impression like this is the most kind of physiologically appropriate fluid to be giving um, just by adding that term normal at the beginning. And it's really not, it's not at all representative of the sodium and chloride balance in the body. It's missing other important electrolytes. And so it's kind of inevitable when you sit and think about it that we can cause some pretty significant electrolyte and metabolic derangements by giving something that's so 
rich in only two of the components we need. And so kind of taking a step back and looking at, okay, what, what kind of fluid are we trying to replace? What kind of electrolytes are we trying to replace? And which is the best option? And I think that's makes it a little bit more clear why going for something balanced makes more sense. That's a really good point that I think it is misleading to call it normal saline. Um, this is always one of those examples when I started seeing the human literature come out that that it wasn't good for you to use normal saline. I was like, finally, something that veterinary medicine is leading the way in because um, in large animal, we don't use um, normal saline that often because it's not readily available in large formulations. So bags that are greater than a liter. And so just by virtue of um, practicality, I, I think that we have kind of led the way um, and it is already our practice to use balanced electrolyte solutions um, in most of our patients. Um, and I think this really highlights the fact that these fluids are drugs. Um, mm -hmm. So there's the electrolytes that are in there are important um, and the kind of nerdy critical care person in me loves this example because it it really highlights um, some of the theories on acid base and electrolytes and how they interact with each other. Um, so I I think that from a teaching standpoint, this is a, a great thing to be able to kind of um, help students with. And I think clinicians um, should also consider this. Um, and I find the hyperkalemia one also a, a super interesting point um, just because you know, not that we want to be going back to research type evidence, but when they've started to evaluate this um, because of the acid base shift that occurs with saline, um, you actually see potassium coming out of cells and you can worsen hyperkalemia potentially more than the small amount of potassium that you're adding with a balanced replacement solution. So, um, we don't know. It's one of those studies that I keep throwing around in my head. We see plenty of blocked goats. Be interesting to see if we just randomize them to receiving balanced fluids and, and saline, um, what would happen to their potassium. But um, that's one of those kind of gee whiz academic things that makes you think. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines. Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. And what about the fifth point in the summary? Yeah, the um, the fifth and the sixth are both about um, colloids, um, and I think that that's something that is of interest to a more limited uh, group of of people as far as equine practitioners, because um, I don't know that there's a ton of um, general practitioners out there using many synthetic colloids or even um, natural colloids like plasma for indications of kind of colloid support. Um, but I think it is um, interesting um, to to note that, you know, 
10, 12 years ago, there was a lot of interest in the use of colloids um, for resuscitation as well as for support of colloid oncotic pressure and um, and based on the things that have been coming out of human medical studies, um, there's risks associated with them, um, and there's not evidence that it that it's really helping that much. So I'll kind of read five and six, the last two summary points. Um, while the proposed mechanism by which colloids exert their effect has been questioned, the equine literature to date does support their influence on colloid oncotic pressure and volume expansion. And then synthetic colloid administration has been shown to exert some, albeit mild effects on hemostatic parameters, similar to those seen in people and small animal patients, particularly at higher doses. Um, as such, it might be wise to limit their administration to lower doses. And it is important to note that there's no data from which to evaluate the potential for additional side effects seen in other species. And so the first number five is kind of related to we do see, um, at least experimentally and in a limited number of, of kind of cases, that you can um, expand their volume um, and it, it does increase their colloid oncotic pressure, um, but um, we don't know as much about the, the side effects. And um, in human medicine, the one that has really limited the use of synthetic colloids has been renal side effects. Um, and that's something that we just don't have any data in our species. It doesn't seem to necessarily hold true in other veterinary species, though. Um, and so it may not be as much of a concern. Um, and I would say for me, I still use them if I really feel like I, it might be the thing that could help the horse, um, realizing that it might not provide as much help as I would hope it to. Um, but I don't feel as hesitant um, related to the, the negative effects as, as they are in human medicine. And, and we really have not as many options, so, so I'll still use it. And is there anything else on the summary points that you would like to address either Dr. Crabtree or Dr. Epstein? Um, I guess I was just gonna throw into the colloid discussion that as a student going with the same kind of vein, um, I was excited to use colloids. I thought the principles were exciting and, you know, a different way to try to expand circulating volume. And, you know, as you can read in the article and in much of, you know, the human literature out there, I think our understanding of how these exert their effect or maybe don't exert their effect the way we expect them to is part of why maybe we've seen disappointing results um, in times where we really expected to see exciting things. Um, but yeah, again, I think if you have a patient you're trying to resuscitate that's refractory to attempts to resuscitate with just crystalloids, we do reach for these because what else are you going to try? And you definitely have patients that you see respond to them. So um, we don't have as nice a clear guidelines as they have started to bring out in human medicine in terms of which patients to avoid them in versus still support their use in. But um, in general, I definitely use these less than I thought I was going to based on the excitement I had when I first learned about their use. And then I don't know, Dr. Epstein, do you have any other big points you wanted to hit home? I mean, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think that the, that is really the summary of the things that we felt like you could take home from the the article, I think there's a lot more details in there if people are interested in them, um, and some of them are are worth reading, I imagine. But um, but I think that if you just took home these 
these six points that would that would be kind of where we are in our understanding of fluid therapy, um, which that's six points and fluid therapy is a really big area. So maybe that tells us something mm-hmm. about where we need to go with fluid therapy. So I think there's um, it highlights that we don't know very much um, and we need to do more research and we need to um, band together to be able to do that. Yeah, I think I would echo all the same things. And I think, um, you know, a renewed understanding of the safety or maybe lack thereof of putting an IV catheter in and running IV fluids, not only from the which product to use, how much are you doing, but the actual maintaining a catheter and understanding that you can have pretty significant um, potentially fatal catheter related complications. Um, and I think that's really helpful for people in the field to know that we're starting to kind of change the way that we might manage things in the hospital as well, either in their own hospital or if they're referring to somewhere like us, is that, you know, I think it was kind of commonplace to, if the patient didn't respond to some enteral fluids and things in the field, that they'd come in and kind of inevitably get a catheter and go on IV fluids. And I, I think that's changing. And I think um, it helps you kind of be prepared to set the client up for realistic expectations and, you know, maybe not commit them to the idea that they're going to get IV fluids, but explain that that might be part of the treatment course. Um, But it may also be that they utilize other routes Um, because sometimes it sounds funny, but sometimes it can be hard to talk a client out of spending the money on IV fluids once they get to us because they've got it in their head that that's what the patient needs. Um, and we want to do what the client expects and what they're prepared for. Um, but yeah, it is surprisingly hard to talk people out of spending that money sometimes. And I think I would be remiss um, if I didn't, while I have two experts in emergency and critical care, uh, if I didn't ask you what you normally do with your fluid therapy for a horse that's experiencing colic, because that's something a lot of veterinarians run up against? Um, I think that it has to be tailored to the patient. So I think that that's one of those things that that also comes out of this. Um, And if you think back to kind of your oath to first to no harm, right? I think that um, for us, we have the luxury of being in a hospital. And so we can get a very good assessment of where the patient is as far as their kind of volume status and hydration, electrolytes and acid base balance. Um, and so I think that we are trying to be better at um, the idea of not doing things that aren't needed, that aren't innocuous. And so for me, um, I, my first question is, are they in shock? Are they perfusing their tissues? And if they are, then that is the essentially only time that I whip out fluids and start bolusing them. And, um, and then I monitor them. Um, and I say, okay, are, is their volume better? And as soon as it's better, then I decide what type of fluid plan I want to progress with. Um, and I tailor it. Um, and like Naomi said, I, um, I don't pop a catheter and everything and started on IV fluids. I think that I try to think, does it need IV fluids? Are there different ways that we could be giving them fluids that would be as good or better than giving it 
IV, um, you have to take into account the situation that you're in, the horse that you're dealing with, the um, owner's kind of understanding and financial limits and abilities. Um, and so it's a really individual um, thing for me, but I would emphasize that not all horses need IV fluid. So for example, I think one of the types of colics that is the most common is an impaction type colic, right? And so I um, am very strongly a proponent of using enteral fluids, so nasogastric fluids for impactions of the large intestine. Different story down here in the Southeast where we have impactions of the small intestine, those I give IV fluids because there's no way for your fluids to, to get to the impaction because they're all backed up um, in the small intestine and you risk um, them generating more reflux and um, in a field situation um, could put them at higher risk for rupturing their stomach or something. But for large colon impactions, I have moved away from using IV fluids necessarily at all, but um, definitely um, as a sole method for treatment of that condition. And I think that's um, a really helpful point. I think if I was um, out in the field, I would it would be nice for me to know that that's sort of how we've shifted and how we like to manage them. Because I think we very often, you know, feel the need to do something out in the field before maybe we refer a patient that we've been trying some enteral fluids on um, and not really feeling like we're making much progress or the client doesn't want to keep watching it all night. And so we're going to refer, I think um, having a, a, a think about which patients really do need those IV fluids and how fast they need them, if at all, helps you make the decision of, do I run them some IV fluids before I send them in? Well, honestly, if they're not in shock and or even if they're in shock and it's gonna delay their treatment too long, it may be better to just send those patients. Or maybe you don't need to worry about putting a catheter in the field and um, they're gonna go down the road to the clinic, your clinic, someone else's clinic, and have a tube in and get enteral fluids or rectal fluids, because maybe that's what they need for their disease process that you think is going on. And then, kind of one step from that is it's very tempting if you've put the catheter in and you've started the fluids and it's taking a while as horse fluids anywhere, but especially in the field always do to put them on the trailer with the fluids still running. Um, and I think if you are kind of on our side at the referral center, it is very normal for us to see those horses arrive hooked up to the fluids and hardly any of the fluids have gone into the horse. And I think that's a really important point for thinking through your plan in the field, because if you think about, you know, what drives fluid rates and getting those fluids into the horse, a lot of it is the change in pressure over the length of the line, which we accomplish in our tall patients by lifting those fluids really high. That's why all of our hospitals have recessed ceilings and pulley systems to get those fluids as high as possible, which if you think about the horse's height in the trailer and the height of the trailer, you just can't accomplish that. Even if it was, you know, a small horse in a draft trailer, you'd be having a hard time. And so now you've just kind of had a little bit of a risk of having that catheter in and attached. Maybe it could disconnect. The horse bleeds in the trailer, which not the end of the world, but never looks that great to the client. Yeah. Or heaven forbid, sucks air in its catheter and gets an air embolus, that could be a much uh, worse outcome. Or just simply, we kind of wasted the money and it didn't get into the horse and didn't do what we wanted it to do. So I think hopefully having a conversation about the fact that 
we don't just pop them all on fluids anymore. That I do think that's a kind of a big paradigm shift that um, we're only just starting to try to get our own residents and interns and students to get their head around. Um, that might help those people in the field that aren't sure whether they should try the fluids on the trailer or not to know that they're probably not going to go into the horse. Yeah. So. I think the the negative side effects can be even more than what Dr. Crabtree was was saying. So, um, you know, um, it doesn't happen very often and it's, it's not something that I think, you know, people are necessarily endangering horses when they do it. But, um, if that catheter becomes disconnected, um, it can cause quite severe problems. And, um, if you're not monitoring your catheter and you're not putting it in, even putting it in the best situation, monitoring it multiple times a day, catheters have complications. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one of the reasons that I, I really, one of the, a case that really kind of pushed me away from putting a catheter in every single course was a horse that got a really bad, um, septic jugular vein thrombosis after having a catheter in for like 12 hours for mm-hmm. a colic that resolved very quickly, um, and was not something that was dehydrated or hypovolemic, um, or couldn't take oral fluids, um, in at that time. So I think you're always informed by like your worst case, and that's not the way to do veterinary medicine, but, um, sometimes it, it does really highlight points that, that are for the better of the, of the, the patients you're going to treat. Well, this has been so educational and enlightening to me. And again, as I said, I'm not a vet. So I'm imagining that a lot of veterinarians, vet techs, vet students are going to be wanting to read the article. And again, we will put a link to the article uh, that was published, the review article by doctors uh, Epstein and Crabtree in the aquamanagement.com article that goes along with this podcast. So if you're listening to the podcast, go to aquamanagement.com and look for the Disease Du Jour podcast on fluid therapy, and you will find that link to the article. Is there anything else you all would like to say before we leave today? I don't think so. Just to thank you for having us, and uh, we welcome any questions. If anyone wants to reach out to us, we're happy to help however we can. Yep, I echo what Naomi said. Well, thank you, Drs. Epstein and Crabtree, for joining me on this episode of Disease Du Jour. And we thank all of our listeners for joining us. And a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. We invite our listeners to rate our episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease to Shore is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.